All right, let's begin. Good evening, everybody. Welcome into the Deep Dive Bible Study. My name is Tim, and I'm so glad that you're here on youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live as we get into commandments six through nine of the Big Ten today. But we're also going to cover some stipulations around those commandments because there's a lot of them, and a lot of the laws of the Torah interact and inform each other. And so that's where we're going. It's Torah part six. And I'm excited to get started. I know you are too, aren't you? Hit that like button, the subscribe button, the notification bell. Get notified every time we go live on your smartphone. I can't find mine. It's somewhere around here. But let's begin. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents Okay, so open up your Bibles if you want to, or you can trust that I have all the scriptures on the screen because we are going into Torah part six, and we're going to look at six through nine of the Ten Commandments. Now, the reason why we're doing six through nine is because virtually all the commentators say that there's a change in um, what you would call cadence, verbal cadence from the Lord to the people of Israel from commandment number six, which is about murder through commandment number nine, which is about false testimony. And the English actually draws it out longer than the Hebrew does. That's important because God is basically doing this for the people of Israel. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this like for four times. Okay. And then, like I said last week, we're going to do six through nine today. We're going to be back in two weeks with the deep dive so uh, we will be doing number 10 because number 10 is very involved. It is the bookend of the Ten Commandments, just like the first one is the bookend for our relationship with God. And it, and it informs everything about how we relate to God vertically. The last commandment, commandment 10, is not only the bookend for the horizontal commandments, how we relate to each other, but it is bookended pointing back to and holding together the container of the eight commandments between the first and the 10th commandment. So it's really cool. We'll get to that in two weeks. But today we do this commandment number six, you shall not murder. And I do have just for your you know, information, the Deuteronomy passage, just so you know, but they're the exact same phrase. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Deuteronomy does add, as you can see there, the word and the Hebrew word, wah, which is there intentionally in a text because it is informing you that these tie together. We commit, we don't commit murder, we don't commit adultery, and we don't commit, what is number eight? St theft. Do not, you shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15. Uh, again, in Deuteronomy, wa is in the beginning of the verse in Hebrew, the word for and. And then commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, Deuteronomy 5 verse 20 and is in the text on purpose. These all tie together. 
These all tie together. And then the last thing that I want to just touch on right here in, in commandment number nine is it's the first commandment of the second half of the law, the horizontal law, you will say, that actually references your neighbor right there in the text. Neighbor is in the text. Do not miss that at all. It's there for a reason. Okay, so God is speaking to the ancient Israelites. This is how you are going to relate to each other. You're not just going to have a relationship with me, you're going to have a relationship with each other. And so much of Christianity needs to be informed by that reality. We are not on our own. We do not do uh, Christianity, you know, uh, individually. Uh, the phrase, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I understand the sentiment, but you are not just personally saved. You are corporately saved. The church is our mother. The members of the church are our brothers and sisters. We belong to each other. We care for each other. We bear each other's burdens. We laugh with each other. We mourn with each other. We celebrate with each other. We are together. There are over 50 five, zero, one another's in the New Testament for that very reason. The very word that we talk about when we say church is ekklesia in the Greek. It means assembly. So this doesn't come out of nowhere in the New Testament. Jesus does not institute this idea that we are a community. No, the Old Testament does. God created a community through the, uh, through the family of Abraham and through his lineage through his family, all the nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is all the foundation for commandments six through 10, because we don't know how naturally to relate to each other. And if you're a parent, you get this more than anybody because you have to learn real quick that that child, which up until it starts talking and walking is a bundle of joy, beauty, precious, innocence. Then it starts walking and talking. And now you have to set guardrails and you have to stop it from doing things. And something that we're going to be talking about today is how all of these commandments are fulfilled in Christ. They are also, they are actually also committed, uh, these sins that the commandments reference, these sins are committed against Christ in his crucifixion. Uh, and there's a lot of symmetry there that we're going to circle back around to at the end of this content. But I don't want to go too deep into that right now. And I want to get to the content because I've got a lot to get through. So we're going to talk about murder. We're going to talk about um, uh, we're going to talk about adultery. We're going to talk about theft. And we're going to talk about bearing false witness, because these are laws that not only were given in the ancient world, but they hold a society together. So let's talk about murder. Number one, you shall not murder. First thing we got to talk about in this commandment is that it is definitely referring to taking an innocent life, an innocent life. That is an important distinction because killing is all over the Old Testament. Putting to death the murderer is part of Torah. So killing, not, I'm sorry, murder, not just killing is mentioned. A couple of things you need to understand uh, about the text from the Hebrew. The word for murder is ratzach, and that is a word that covers uh, death of a human through carelessness, intention, or a wish to intentionally harm or put someone's life to an end, or negligence. So murder is different in the Hebrew 
from the Hebrew for killing. The word for killing in Hebrew is a different word. It is harag. And the word here in this text is intentionally chosen to refer to the taking of an innocent life. Now, before we get into more of this text, this is a big one for our for, for our culture right now. Um, if you're listening to this in the future, and you very well could be, we are on the heels of another mass shooting in America, uh, a, a violent, uh, murderous, mentally ill person in Maine went from place to place and shot up people at a bowling alley and several other locations. And there was a manhunt statewide, shut the state down. We've, we've got a problem in our culture. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. We have a problem with, of course, mass shootings I just mentioned, but we also have a problem with um, just violence overall. We have protests that actually become violent by nature. We, we have a serious issue with uh, abortion. If you're a Christian, you can't be pro-abortion, period, full stop. We have a serious problem with euthanasia being more and more um, acceptable, maybe even propagated by politicians, assisted suicide, physician-assisted suicide, which is completely counter to the Hippocratic Oath, which is the first statement of that is do no harm. Uh, so we have a violent culture. We have a murderous culture. We have a killing culture. And by killing, I mean murderous, okay? And then we have the audacity to say to people that we want to be against the death penalty. Wait, wait, wait. Before we, before we tackle that one, how about we tackle the real bad ones, like the real problem of <laughs> intentional killing of innocent people? And this is why God mentions this one, not just killing in general in the Ten Commandments. Now, people say, well, what's the problem that we're seeing? Where does this all come from? It's amazing to me that we don't see it, but it's as clear as day to me as a pastor. We have a we have a insatiable appetite for violence. Uh, and it has grown exponentially in our media and in our pop culture uh, over the course of the last 50 to 60 years. You go back to movies and entertainment options from the 1950s to the 1970s, and, you know, you had killings, of course, in certain shows. But today, pull out, you know, the popular films from John Wick to Kill Bill back in the early 2000s, and you have just blood everywhere. And we're on the heels of Halloween also at the time of this recording, at the time of this pr presentation. So, you know, <laughs> Halloween has been co-opted from All Saints Day to this bloody murderous kind of theme that happens on television. You see the release of all the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, the Halloween movies, the Friday the 13th, the screams and all the you just we have in the human condition. OK, an insatiable appetite for murder and death. And then we glorify it and we put it on a big screen and we glorify vengeance. I was um, I was amused last year this time when when Bill Maher was talking about mass shootings. And he says, at this point, we have to look at our at our entertainment options. And and what Bill Maher did on real time was absolutely humorous to me as a Christian pastor, because he basically reiterated the narrative of the moral majority in the 1980s that was talking about the fact that we're going to have a violent culture because we have violent entertainment options. And Bill Maher, 20 years ago, would have mocked that philosophy. And a year ago, he was basically holding that philosophy. And he went through a list of movies that talk about vengeance. He even mentions John Wick, the movie John Wick by name, which I've watched the first John Wick. No need to watch the rest because it's just a guy shooting people indiscriminately because they killed his dog. 
That's basically the theme of the John Wick movies. And so you have just murderous violence everywhere. And it never ends. It just gets worse and worse. It's insatiable. That was the point that I made originally. And at some point, we have to ask ourselves, our insatiable lust for violence on the screen is um, helping life to imitate art in our culture. Because mass shooters see John Wick taking out his gun and just shooting everybody, and then they act it out. Life imitates art. Uh, some people on the political left side of the aisle in our culture want to blame guns. And to me, that's ludicrous. It's like blaming a car for a car crash. You, you don't blame the car, you blame the operator of the car. And, and so you have to take these things with rationality and honesty and integrity if we're going to see any changes uh, be made. But what we're talking about here when it comes to murder is that this original commandment was given in a time of an another time of insatiable appetite for uh, vengeance, for retribution. And really the law steps in to say we're going to put boundaries up. We're going to put guardrails up around the inclination for humans to take vengeance. So we're talking about the taking of an innocent life. Now, I put in the parentheses there, present and future. Why do I say that? Well, number one, because it was already a crime in the Torah and it was universally accepted as a crime in the ancient world, murder. It was just a matter of how. <laughs> how was murder uh, a crime and what do we do as a result of murder? So in Genesis chapter four, verse eight, the first sin against another man occurs. The, the, the very first sin was against God when Adam and Eve did not trust the word of God and they ate the fruit. The second sin is a murder horizontally. It is when Cain takes his brother Abel and kills him. Uh, Genesis four, eight, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord comes and investigates just like the Lord investigated on the first sin. He investigates what happened with Adam. He now comes and approaches Cain. Uh, this is his second approach to Cain because he knew that Cain had murderous intent and he said, listen, uh, sin is crouching at your door and you must defeat it. Uh, but he doesn't. He goes out and he kills his brother. And verse 10, come, uh, the Lord comes to Cain and says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Now look at that word blood because the word blood is demiai in the Hebrew and it means, and it is, I'm sorry, it means blood. It means it's in the plural. And so when God says your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, the word brother is singular. The word, uh, the word brother is singular. The word blood is plural. It's almost as if in true English, you would translate it to say your brother's bloods or more proper English, your brother's bloodline, your brother's offspring is crying out to me from the ground. Here's why murder is so anathema to the Lord. It is because it doesn't just cut off that person from life. It cuts off every person that could come from that person. This absolutely speaks to abortion because in abortion, you don't just cut off the person's life in the womb. You cut off every person that that person could produce after they are born. This is an inherently evil sin to end, to end the life of the innocent inherently evil. Uh, life is to be preserved and protected at all costs. God is the author of life, and we are not in the business of taking that away from him. Let's go to this passage from uh, Proverbs chapter 6, where it talks about the six things that the Lord hates. 
And they are, if you will look with me, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and then hands that shed innocent blood. God hates murder. Why? Because it is an affront against the image of God. Who bears the image of God? We do. Not monkeys, not cattle, not dogs. We do. Amazingly, we live in a culture where we love dogs more than humans nowadays. No one would ever think about aborting a dog, but we abort humans all the time. So, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Um, this is a devastating evil, murder, because life, life is not cut off. Lives are cut off. Okay, back to our, our discussion, however. We have Cain committing this grievous evil against his brother. And then we have another couple of things to say on this. Chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 6, God says to Noah, after the flood, he enacts the retributive law. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. What is God saying? He's saying, this is, you're going to curtail murder by punishing the murderer with death. This is capital punishment. This is the foundation of that. And I bring this up because there are many Christians who will say, well, we have to get away from capital murder because two wrongs don't make a right. The Bible begs to differ. The Bible absolutely begs to differ. Now, we can make a moral argument against capital punishment on the basis of many innocent lives have been taken on the basis of false evidence or, you know, the manipulation of evidence. And that argument I hear. But when the evidence is incontrovertible, when there is no doubt and there's a confession, we must punish the murderer, according to the Bible anyway, with death. That is what God stipulates, not in the law. It comes before the law. The law backs up his covenantal agreement with, with Noah on the heels of the flood, which, by the way, the flood was God putting to death a murderous culture that was evil in every facet of life. So you have in Scripture clear uh, support for capital punishment and there is a difference, and this is what I'm really trying to get down to here, between murder and killing, even in the Hebrew word. Okay, moving on. So we're talking about the taking of an innocent life. Then we have to determine in the Torah, and God does this in the Torah, in the difference between intentional murder, which in our uh, judicial system, we call that first degree murder, or unintentional, which is second degree or third degree murder, or manslaughter in our judicial system. And it's amazing how the Torah speaks to this 3,000 years ago, uh, longer than that, 15, 3,500 years ago. God is giving this, this um, distinction well before our court system existed. And our court system draws the distinction and the stipulations for that distinction from Torah. We're going to see that as we go through this content. We have to determine the difference, and the Torah does this, on how we can say this person took a life intentionally or did they take the life unintentionally? So the last thing that we're going to discuss on murder is just killing. And <laughs> this is, in my opinion, a non-issue. Just killing is an, a necessary thing in a world that is uh, saturated with sin. 
Now there will be no there will be no killing in the in the uh, age to come. But what I really get alarmed with is when Christians want to enact the laws of the life to come with the life that we are in now. Hear me very carefully. A dirty world requires some dirt on one's hands to manage it. Our world is dirty because of sin. There's going to have some, so there's going to be a residue of dirt on one's hands, even as we're cleaning it up and keeping it from falling to pieces. We, we must make that stipulation clear because just killing is absolutely biblical. Number one, you have holy war uh, in Joshua, where God commands them to wipe everybody out, men, women, and children. Uh, you have the, the death of the murderer, the person who murders will be put to death of the adulterer, another capital crime of the false witness, another capital crime. So capital crimes exist and the death penalty is a biblical thing. Again, I'm not talking about the moral argument about when you have false evidence and you have, you know, people who shouldn't be put to death because the evidence was questionable in the first place. That argument I can hear and I can have. But when we're talking about clear incontrovertible evidence, uh, just killing is the case. Uh, there, everybody knows this. It's just a matter of how willing they are to come to the reality that they know this. Everybody knows that the Nazis had to be killed to be stopped. This was a, this was an ideology that was unstoppable through rationality. It had to be put to death. We had to kill. We had to kill in some cases, innocents and civilians as collateral damage of the second world war. That's why it's kind of alarming to me when everybody's freaking out about, um, Jews, the, the Jewish nation going after Hamas, you know, the Israeli nation going after Hamas. And yes, there is going to be innocent bloodshed, unfortunate, not intentional on, beha on behalf of that, those actions. Uh, but the Hamas terrorists specifically targeted the innocent. Okay. But everybody knows that just killing exists. We all know that we had to kill to end slavery in this country. Okay, we all know that a terrorist intent on killing others, maybe a mass shooter intent on killing others, has to be stopped with death. You know, the main shooter, it would, it would have been a wonderful thing if someone at the bowling alley had had a gun and, and killed him before he killed however many others he killed. Him killing three would have been far better than him killing 18. And if you disagree with that, I don't know what to tell you. This is as clear as, as, a, as a true statement as can be. You have to kill at points to stop and limit murder. It brings me back to the 1988 presidential election where Michael Dukakis, the governor from Massachusetts, who was very known for his uh, furlough program for murderers in prison. He let her murderer out on his furlough program. And then that murderer went out and raped and killed a woman. Then he was asked about this, uh, his views on the death penalty in, a, in the uh, presidential debate. And the questioner said, if your wife, Kitty, was raped and murdered, would you favor the death penalty uh, in that case? And he, he very coldly said no. And overnight, his approval rating dropped and his lead over George H.W. Bush at that time dropped precipitously and he lost the election. My point in saying all this is that even the Lord's word here comes to speak to our hearts and confirm in our hearts what we all know. Just killing is necessary. And so not all killing is murder. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, so we are moving right along with the study here. There are different types of murder. Yes, this is not hard to imagine. 
There are different types of murder, and not all murder is the same. So how do we distinguish that? First, there's intentional murder. Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. Uh, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, uh, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So this is talking about intentional murder, which is an affront, an insult against God. It insults God when someone lies in wait for someone and kills them. Then there's unintentional murder. Deuteronomy 4.41, then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer may flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being an enemy with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities to save his life. Now, the question, of course, comes to us uh, like this. How do we know whether it was intentional or it was purpose or it was unintentional? And that brings me to other portions of the Torah that speak to this. The Torah instructs the difference between intentional and unintentional killing. Number one, the use of an instrument uh, betrays intentional killing. Numbers 35, 16. If he struck him down with an iron object, and later it says with a stone tool or with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Then if there's hatred and planning involved, and yes, the Bible stipulates about hate crimes. <laughs> and it says in Numbers 35, verse 20, if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. It's very clear in the scripture. Uh, God is opposed to intentional killing, but makes a, makes a stipulation or a differentiation between intentional killing and uh, negligent killing, such as someone's ox, and this is in the Torah elsewhere, someone's ox gourds another person or someone uh, unintentionally falls off of somebody's roof. You know, that person is liable, but they are not to be put to death. It is not, it is not a capital crime. Then it talks about how to deal with the murderer. So this is going to play into the ninth commandment, bearing false witness. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30 says, if anyone kills the person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. And here's where we get our judicial system for a trial of your peers, 12 being the number of any jury. It says, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall, you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. City of refuges, refuge were places where the unintentional murderer may flee to find safety from the avenger of blood, the relative of the person who was killed unintentionally. And that person could come home only after the death of the high priest, because the death of the high priest, it was stipulated, absolved him from his guilt. Now, all of that points to Christ because he is our true high priest. And at his death, we are all absolved from our guilt finally and fully. But in the Old Testament, this was a stipulation to differentiate between intentional killing and unintentional um, homicide. It's kind of amazing, and it should be amazing to you, to consider that these laws are 3,500 years old, and they are the foundation for our current laws as citizens of this country. We base our judicial system on Torah. That's really what is happening here. That's what we're learning. That's what we're discovering. We have the uh, entire criminal investigation system, detectives, Finding motive, finding cause, finding 
relationship to the deceased and, and all of those intricate details, many times complicated details, to determine guilt and to, ter- to determine punishment. These things come from Torah. The ancient world did not have these things. The ancient world, yes, observed that murder was wrong, how to deal with it and how to clean it up, that was another story. Going back to Numbers, verse 33 uh, of Numbers 35, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which, which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. This idea of blood and land, that is also very common speech in the Old Testament. It goes all the way back again to Cain and Abel when God said the voice of your brother's blood or bloodline, plural, is crying to me from the ground. God is um, it, God is offended by the death of a human being who is innocent, who is not deserving of death because they killed someone else. The reason why is because we are his image bearers and that blood shed into the ground is polluting to the place where God would dwell with his people. Ultimately, we are seeing the value of the human being. We're seeing the heart of God. We are seeing the heart of God to protect his creation, the, the pinnacle of creation, mankind. And so murder, of course, is outlawed. And the Torah has plenty of more to say. We could spend a whole episode on that. We have to continue moving forward. Let's talk about adultery. This is commandment number seven. You shall not commit adultery. And when we talk about this, number one is the great sin. Now, I call it the great sin because all Near Eastern uh, ancient cultures called adultery sin. And they didn't just call it sin. They called it the great sin. It's kind of interesting because we think of this as unique to the Judeo-Christian ethic, but it is not. Even in the land of the East, even in the Islamic world, even in the Arab world, uh, adultery is unthinkable. And we, there will be a spiritual component here that we will get to. But the one thing that we have to point out, point out here is that it is a high-handed sin against God, even in ancient Near Eastern cultures, before Torah is given through Moses to the people of Israel. We can go back to Genesis chapter 20, where Abimelech, who was the king of Gerar in the Negev, and uh, Abram, or Abraham at this point, is sojourning through the land, and he deceitfully informs Abimelech that a Sarah, Sarah is his sister when she's really his wife. Now, full disclosure, she is his half-sister, the son of his, uh, the daughter of his father, but not his mother. But he tricks Abimelech, and this is the second time he's done it, by the way. He also tricked Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he went there, but he tricks Abimelech in Gerar in the promised land, and God speaks to Abimelech through a dream, saying, you're a dead man because the woman you have is another man's wife. And he said, I did this in innocence. And he says, I know, and that's why I didn't kill you. And Abimelech calls to Abraham in Genesis 20, and says, what have you done? So you have this idea in the ancient cultures, ancient Near Eastern cultures, that even they saw adultery as sinful. Go to Potiphar's house, and you have Joseph. This is before the law is given. Joseph, speaking to Potiphar's wife, how can I uh, sin this great wickedness, this high-handed sin against God? So all over the, the world, the ancient world at least, adultery was considered a great sin in the eyes of those cultures. When God speaks this to the people of Israel, it is assumed it is sin 
That's why these commandments are short. Murder, assumed to be sin. Adultery, assumed to be sin. God is just kind of cementing this into the context of Israel. Then there is this, then there is more to say about adultery, but why God outlaws it is because ultimately it is about protecting the family unit. To commit adultery, Malachi talks about this, is to cover your household with violence. When you commit adultery, when you forsake the faithfulness, the fidelity of your union with your spouse, you are harming your entire home. And some of you, I'm pricking your conscience right now because this is in your story, or, or this is in your par parents' story, or in your children's story. And you understand this experientially, not just theoretically, that adultery destroys families, it destroys children, it destroys more than just the sexual fidelity of the husband and wife. It is a far, it is a nuclear bomb of a sin. It explodes. It's a mushroom cloud, and then there's residue for miles into generations. We don't, we don't have to discuss it in detail, but we can all talk about and think about David's great sin with Bathsheba. It doesn't just affect his heart. It affects his children's heart. His sin is then followed up by Absalom's sin in doing the same thing, and Amnon's sin against his own half-sister, Tamar. And you have the destruction, the nuclear bomb explode in David's life and the residue stretches for miles into the future generations. So God is protecting the family. It is a capital offense for that very reason. Now, let me just explain something too about capital offense, because some people think that God is bloodthirsty in the Old Testament because of how many sins were punishable by death. Number one, the punishment of death was a deterrent, not necessarily the program. Uh, let, me, let me say it this way. The punishment of death was to inject fear into their hearts. It wasn't that God was saying, yes, go get them, kill everybody that sins. No, it was, I want you to see the seriousness of this sin so that you do not practice it because this sin will destroy you. And I have already talked about this um, on this series repeatedly. The punishment of death is a picture for Christians of what happens to us spiritually because of sin. Sin brings death, spiritual death, but it brings death nonetheless. So the Old Testament is speaking to the spiritual realities that we have in Christ uh, in acknowledging that the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23 or 6.23. And we understand these things cost us spiritually costs us emotionally, costs us relationally and socially. And so God stipulates that death is the punishment to say this sin is great. This sin is grievous. And it is like you are killing yourself when you commit it anyway. The last thing I want to say about uh, adultery is that the later prophets, Isaiah and Hosea, most notably, pick up on this idea that adultery is a picture of idolatry, spiritual fornication against God. And this is important because there is an analogy in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It is not just a New Testament reality, but it is also an Old Testament reality that God's people are related to him as a man is related to his wife. 
Hosea talks about this, Isaiah talks about this, and of course, Jesus, John the Baptist picks up on this when he says, I am the friend of the bridegroom, he is the bridegroom, the bridegroom has the bride, not the friend of the bridegroom. All of that imagery of Jesus being the man in this spousal relationship to his people is predicated on the Old Testament, which, if I can pause for a moment and just make sure that we get something very clear. We do not study Torah as if it's this old shelved book on God's, you know, in God's library that we don't really have to talk about anymore. No, the New Testament and all the realities of the New Testament, we're going to get this in false witnessing in just a moment, um, are predicated and built upon the stipulations of Torah. You don't have the New Testament and all the all the uh, laws, rules and, and social um realities of the New Testament without the Old Testament. Now, there is a reason, and we may get to it tonight and we may not, but there is a reason why there is uh, differences there. And we're going to learn that as we continue to study Torah. But I just want to make sure that you're understanding that we study Torah because Torah is still applicable. It is still our Bible. And we must learn from these words how to live in our culture today. Okay. Back to adultery. All over the, the Old Testament, adultery is warned about because it is such a high-handed sin. It is a high-handed crime against God. Um, the punishment, Deuteronomy 2022, both the man and the woman will die. Uh, Leviticus 2010, if a man commits adultery with the wife of a neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Then the Proverbs writer, Solomon, Warns repeatedly. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 8. Repeated warnings against adultery and the adulteress in particular. Proverbs 5, 3 to 6. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. There is this... Um, attractiveness to adultery, right? There is this sweetness on the outside to adultery. Oh, that seems like a good idea. And the Bible is clear. Yep, that's what it's going to look like. The adulterous woman's speech is like honey, smoother than oil. It seems like a good idea, but it leads to death. Verse eight of the same chapter. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near her door, lest you give your honor to others or your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your Labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end your life of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, how my heart despised reproof. And I could go on and on and on from Proverbs 5 all the way through Proverbs 8 on the warnings against adultery. The point being made, it is a grievous evil, and the best course of action is to run. Run from it. Like Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. He ran so fast he left his coat and then she used that to accuse him falsely. But we must run. Paul says to Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth, the evil, the youthful uh, desires of lust. You have to run from it. You can't make allowances for it. By the way, again, what I just said, the New Testament is predicated on the Old Testament. When Jesus talks about your eye gouging it out if it causes you to sin, this is coming from this language in uh, Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, and the language of the Old Testament that outlawed adultery and uh, how evil it was. He is speaking from the text. He is not countering the text. Please never, 
ever say that Jesus annulled the Old Testament and introduced a new and higher and better law. <laughs> he never did that. What Jesus does is he rightly exposits the Old Testament so that we truly understand the weight of the law, the depth of the law, the seriousness of the law. Then we also understand our inadequacies to keep the law. We can't keep the law. We are powerless against the law. And then we look to the gospel and his blood to save us from the curse of the law. That is how we are to read Torah properly. So adultery. Now let's move on to theft. You shall not steal. When we talk about this law, it is important that we understand three basic realities. Number one, it encompasses the second table of the law. It's, it's right in the middle. Okay, we're in commandment number eight. We're talking here about all five of the second table together. So you have six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eight, thou shalt not steal, looks at all five. It kind of points chiastically, radiates out to the second table of law. Here's how. Murder is the taking of a life, stealing of a life, and as we talked about, lives. Adultery is the stealing of a spouse. We will be talking about false testimony. That is robbing someone of justice because that's the heart of the uh, ninth commandment. And coveting is the desiring to take what is another person's property. Secondly, personal property is a thing. A lot of people uh, don't understand that God is pro-personal property. And this is why totalitarian states are founded on the confiscation of personal property. Everything belongs to the state or everything belongs to all the people. And um, this is why they limit your speeches and your, your speech and your freedoms and your rights to uh, attain these goals. Every fascist has to rob you of the idea of personal property to enact his ideology. Uh, society cannot be and must not be communal. It is impossible. A lot of people want to go to Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four and see everybody sharing everything and what a happy place it was. And the, and the New Testament church was wonderful. And the first century, church, you know, <laughs> the Jerusalem church was a picture of communism enacted by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian community. OK, wrong and wrong. Yes, they shared the possessions. Yes, they took care of the poor. Yes, that is a picture of how the Christian community should live. But in about 10, about 10 years from that moment, the Jerusalem church is stricken with poverty. Nobody can pay their bills. And Paul has to travel around the Gentile churches throughout Asia Minor, Asia Minor and what will become the European continent to ask them to financially assist the first century church in Jerusalem. So this idea that Christianity is um, the foundation for so socialism or communism is totally wrong, totally disconnected from the Eighth Commandment. Personal property is a the thing. Then lastly, respect for others is an essential value. There are ways that we can steal that have nothing to do with property. You can steal a person's reputation by talking badly about them. You can steal time from your boss by being lazy or showing up late for work or leaving early or just lounging about. You can steal ideas through plagiarism and not giving proper credit. You can steal honor from someone by uh, either speaking negatively about them or taking credit for their work. So there's ways that you steal that upends society that has nothing to do with people's property, but it does have everything to do with respect for who they are. And so it is 
without, with absolute intention that God kind of puts this one at the pinnacle of the mountain. If you climb up commandment six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, uh, number eight feeds into and fee and, and informs the motivation behind obeying the other four commandments of the final uh, five. Now let's move on to the last commandment that we're going to discuss today. And this commandment number nine, thou shalt bear false, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay. This is the first one to commit to mention the word neighbor. So we were talking about the horizontal law and let us be clear. We are talking about bearing false witness. When we're talking about bearing false witness, uh, we're dealing with lying testimony, lying testimony. That is you will be called in to bear witness to a crime or to someone's character, and you must tell the truth in the courtroom. The language of the law is dealing with that. Now, does this mean we get to lie outside of the courtroom? Of course not. But when it counts most, when someone's life is on the line, such as a, 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 an accused murderer's life is on the line, be a person of truth. Of course, you're going to be a person of truth outside of that moment. But this commandment and the language specifically is referring to that moment, which informs our understanding of Torah. Here's what that means. Here's what I mean. Torah works the best when it's most important. It, it, Torah is informing us how to live when it is most important to live uh, that way. And this cannot be overstated. You want Torah when it counts. That's basically what I'm trying to say. That's the easiest way to say it. You want Torah when it counts. You want people to be honest when it counts the most. Now that brings me up, brings me to this second uh, line item that we're going to discuss on bearing false witness and lying. Is it ever necessary to lie? Now, of course, some of you will be um, letter of the law people and you will say never. It is never necessary to lie. Okay. The book of Exodus itself begs to differ. <laughs> the Torah itself begs to differ. You have to read the Bible rightly. When we talk about Torah, I said this in uh, episode one. We're not just talking about the 613 laws of the Old Testament of the first five books of Moses. We're talking about the first five books of Moses in their totality. In their totality. You're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, much of that uh, text is not laws. Much of that text is narrative, is history. In the beginning, God, and this is what happened, and then this is what happened in the world, and then this happened, and this. So you have narrative interjected or in, intertwined with laws and stipulations and commandments. And the narrative informs the commandments, and the commandments inform the narrative. They have a relationship together. So when I say Exodus begs to differ with the idea that sometimes lying is lying is never necessary, I mean, just go back to the first chapter of Exodus, and we can right now on the Bible camp, Exodus chapter one, you have Israel increasing greatly. Then you have um, Pharaoh who is a new Pharaoh and he doesn't know Joseph and he is intimidated by Israel's vast population growth. And then he afflicts them with heavy burdens and he enslaves them. And then he says in verse 15 to the Hebrew midwives, 
and it mentions them by name, Shifra and Puah, when you serve as midwife of the Hebrew women, if you see a son, kill him. And if it's a daughter, live, let her, let her live. And the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. Then the king of Egypt finds this out. He, he brings them in. Uh, he says, what have you done? Why did you let the male children live? And the midwives, what do they do? They say to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Okay, they're lying. This, let me just highlight it. This is a lie. <laughs> and it is a lie, and I hope you hear this, to preserve the life of the innocent. Okay? You say, well, that's just one example. Okay. Challenge accepted. Let's go to Joshua chapter two, <laughs> because this is when Joshua sends the spies into Jericho to spy it out. They come to the house of Rahab. She is a prostitute. She hides them. The Bible says in verse three of chapter two that the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house for they've come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men come to me, but I do not know where they were from. Uh, and that is a lie because later she says, and she testifies to those men. I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard about how the Lord dried up the Red Sea and how you took care of the Amorites before beyond the Jordan and uh, Shihon and Og, and you devoted them to destruction. So she's lying straight to the king of uh, uh, Jericho's face when she protects the spies. So when I say, uh, in this discussion, is lying ever, ever necessary? See Exodus 1 and see Joshua 2. You have Sifra and Pua. It says push. That was autocorrect. Sorry. Pua. The midwives sparing the male children of Israel. You have jo Rahab sparing the spies' lives. And you have these instances, rare, but narratively in the, the text, showing us that there are times where the lesser evil of bearing false witness is better than the greater evil of seeing the innocent slaughtered. This is not to suggest in any way that you should make a practice of lying. No, absolutely not. It is to suggest, however, that there are times in human history where lying saves lives. Um, when Jews were hidden in Nazi Germany, it saved lives and the lesser evil stopped the greater evil. How does scripture deal with Rahab? And this is a good, good question to kind of undergird my argument here. Uh, it deals with her particularly favorably. Let me show you. She shows up in Joshua 2. Uh, she is spared in Joshua 6 when, they, when Jericho's walls fall. By the way, even God steps up to say she's going to be saved because the Bible says that her house was built into the wall of Jericho when the nation of Israel marches seven times on the seventh day and then shouts and the walls come down. There was a portion of the wall that does not come down. Guess which portion it was? It was Rahab's, it was Rahab's house. So even God himself, who miraculously brings the walls down, spared the lying prostitute from destruction because she spared his servants, the spies, the land of uh, the people of Israel. Well, she shows up also in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. She is 
um, the wife of Salmon, who is the father of Boaz. So Rahab the prostitute right there in the lineage of not only uh, Jesus, but also David. And then amazingly and astonishingly, she shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of the faith. And the scripture says in Hebrews eleven thirty one, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She commits the greater, the lesser crime of lying to spare the death, the greater crime of murdering the spies. And God puts her in the hall of fame again. Please, please do not interpret what I am saying as giving you permission to lie under any circumstances, except for when you are literally sparing someone's life. That has to be stipulated and emphasized um, more than once in this episode. But what is happening here in this law is God is speaking to the reality that your word has to be truthful. Back to the original intention about bearing false witness. Leviticus 5 speaks to this. If you are called, verse, verse 1 of Leviticus 5, if you are called to testify about something that you have seen or that you know about, it is sinful to refuse to testify and you will be punished for your sin. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 16, uh, talks about bearing false testimony. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties uh, to dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, there could be an argument made here that uh, bearing false witness is punishable by death. Again, death, a picture of spiritual death. When we lie, we do die spiritually. Um, it brings spiritual death. Uh, truth brings life. Jesus spoke about the truth, bringing life. He is the way, the truth and the life. And lying is the antithesis of that. So as much as we cover, is it ever necessary? Yes, very infrequently. I would say severely infrequently. And no, I'm not talking about when your wife asks you if this dress makes her look fat. No, I am talking about when greater evil can be stopped through the lesser evil of lying. All of those commandments now, commandments six through nine, these are the horizontal commandments. And Jesus comes along and he elevates them. So are you ready to have your heart crushed? Because this is the work of the law as Luther uh, stipulates and uh, as every good Bible preacher stipulates. The purpose of the law is to crush your self-confidence before God. You have no self-confidence on your own moral integrity before God because... You break these commandments even if you do not physically kill someone. Uh, Jesus speaks about murder in Matthew chapter 5, 21. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, he's liable to judgment because the heart, remember? Remember when it talks about the intention of the murder? That's how you stipulate the difference between high-handed or first-degree murder and manslaughter. Jesus is not inventing something new. He's talking about that that intention of the heart is what's at stake here. And anger leads to murder. And so you're liable to judgment just for um, the anger in your heart towards your brother. Or, you know, calling him raka, you, you fool. You'll be liable to the hellfire. Uh, so you have a, something against your brother. Make right with your brother before you come and offer your gift. What is Jesus doing? He is, he is exposing the heart of the law. Anger and resentment and ill will toward your brother. These are sins against God. These are sins liable for judgment. 
and they corrupt and pollute the land, your relationship with God. Jesus spoke on adultery, same sermon, Matthew chapter five, verse 27. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is he doing? He's exposing the heart of the law. It is not just the activity of touching another man's wife. It is the intention behind it. The heart matter, what Proverbs chapter five, six, and seven warns about. Um, Matthew 5.31, if you divorce your wife and you give her a certificate of divorce and then you go out and you marry someone else without sexual morality being involved in the first divorce, you are causing her to commit adultery and you are committing adultery. This is exposing the heart of God, spiritual fidelity, marital fidelity. These are the things that God wants from his people. Jesus spoke about false testimony in the same in the same sermon, Sermon on the Mount, again, Matthew 5, 33, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You shall perform all that you have sworn. But I say to you, do not even take an oath. Let your yes be yes. Don't swear on the temple. Don't swear on the throne. Don't swear on Jerusalem, right? The, the, this, this idea of you only taking, you're, you should only be taken seriously when you swear on something. This is a word game. This is a mouth game. Stop playing that game. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. At this point, you may feel, wow, that's hard. What Jesus says and what Paul says and how this law is thoroughly and fully understood. I don't got that. And even as I studied this, I was challenged and chastised in my own heart. The law convicted me. It convicted me that, yes, I am a sinner and I break these laws. And here's what is happening to you right now. Do you know what's happening to you? <laughs> this is wonderful. This, it might not feel wonderful, but it's a wonderful news. God is starting to scratch your heart. And what he does is he scratches your heart from the outside so that you are pricked, so that you are convicted, so that you are drawn into something that you desperately need. The first intention of the Torah, protecting the community from the individual, right? We said that a couple of episodes back. But the second one is it is producing a godlike character in the heart of his people. This is how I want you to live. I want you to live like me. I want you to partner with me. Put your hand in mine and let's live this out together. So here's how that works. Uh, practically, here's how, here's how that plays out. The law is the blue line around the person. And as a child... And a child is kind of like when you first come to know the Lord, you, you know, you understand the law. Um, the law speaks to you from the outside in. And Paul says in Romans chapter two, that even non-believers show that the law is written on their hearts, it's working on their conscience, it's, it's causing them conflicting thoughts, it's accusing or excusing them. So the law comes to us from the outside, outside in, and we are confronted with who we should be. Now, when you educate a child, and you have to see this constantly as a parallel for the Christian life for spiritual development, you do not expect a child to understand the rationality behind the law before you give them the law. So you teach a child not to take things that don't belong to them without expecting the child to understand that that child must respect other people's property because property is individual and, and you want to be kind and nice and you want to, you know, care for others. You don't have to have that whole explanation out for the child. No, the child is confronted from the outside by that law in ways that they don't understand. This is what God does with the law on our hearts. We are confronted with ways to live that we don't understand. Now, of course, murder, adultery, lying. Yeah, big ones that we all say, yes, those are wrong. Okay, how about fornicating? 
having sex outside of marriage in any way. A lot of Americans, a lot of Westerners say, I don't agree with that one. But that's confronting you from the outside. And there are laws about fornication, both in the Old and New Testament. God is confronting us in ways that we do not presently understand. This is how the law works. It comes from the outside in, it starts to scratch, starts to prick on our conscience. We know something's not right. Well, what's happening? God is drawing us. He's drawing us to himself so that he can do the second work of grace upon us, which is to give us a new heart, what Jeremiah predicted or prophesied in Jeremiah 31. God will give them a new heart. He will put their law within them and write it on their hearts and they will be and he will be their God and they will be his people. So the law comes to us from the outside in and the work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. And these partner together conviction from the outside and regeneration from the inside so that there is a harmony, a, a meeting of the two. And we don't just obey the letter of the law, but we inhabit the law in our hearts and live to the fullest expression of the law as uh, expressed and exhibited in Christ. And we become God-like people in community. That's commandments number six through nine. That's the reason why the law exists. Let's talk about them. Murder, God's image must be honored in mankind. Adultery, God's design for the family must be protected. Theft, God's property must be respected. False witness, God's truth must be preserved. Now, I said to you in the beginning that the death of Jesus happened because these four horizontal commandments were all broken. Let me illustrate. Number one, murder. Jesus shed his blood. His innocent blood was shed to atone for our guilty blood. Number two, adultery was committed. Jesus took the punishment of what Isaiah and Hosea stipulated in the land or the people committing a spiritual adultery by idolatrizing and um, worshiping false gods. Theft, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. So you have right there a picture of uh, Jesus bearing our sins on the cross and that one thief, right, comes to Christ and is absolved of his sins through confession of, of Jesus who dies without deserving punishment. And false witness is what handed Jesus over to the Romans in the first place. Amazing symmetry, amazing cooperation of the Old Testament and the New Testament together. So we joined God in recreating in the 10 words, the first five, we had already talked about this and we will skip ahead here. I don't need to repeat them. Let's get into the second set or the, at least the first four, no damaging the image of God, no infidelity rather than faithfulness and permanence, no disrespect of private property, no falsehood undermining justice. And that is how we take God's left hand, right hand, put him first, left hand, honor each other, love each other, care for each other, protect each other. And it will go well with you. And that is the point of Torah, that we might live in the blessing of God. That's the episode. Thanks for joining me. Support the channel if you want. When you support us, we support Project Rescue and the American Bible Society. By the way, Project Rescue fighting against that eighth commandment, not stealing people and kidnapping them for child sex slavery. Like, share, subscribe. That would be appreciated. Programming note, we will not be back with the deep end or deep dive next week, but we will be back with 10 questions with Tim next Thursday. So th not, not tomorrow, but Thursday next week. I know it says the first of the month there. I didn't change that. 
next Thursday, we will be back with 10 Questions with Tim. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you got a lot out of this tonight. It's a pleasure to bring it to you. God bless you. Have a great night. Mm -hmm.